Luke 23, looking at verses 26 through 49. Title of the sermon is Christ's Final Words. We are looking at his crucifixion this evening. The time has come for Jesus to ascend Mount Calvary and die upon the cross. Many things are happening during these hours, but the focus in many ways, particularly in the book of Luke, is upon the words of Jesus Christ. We're going to walk through a good portion of the text today, contemplating those words from Luke specifically. We'll also consider a a saying of Christ in Matthew, just one. Luke focuses in upon the words of Christ, highlighting the thoughts and intents of the one who is bearing the sins of the world. We get a unique picture through the book of Luke into what Jesus is thinking, into the spirit with which he has gone to the cross, into uh, his priorities in those final moments. There's a very different perspective in Matthew. The sayings of Christ in Matthew, which do not merge with Luke's or with John's, the sayings of Christ in Matthew uh, focus in significantly more on what is happening spiritually, on what Jesus is doing bearing the sin of the world. And then in John, the focus is actually more on uh, the material things, Jesus taking care of his mother, Jesus uh, thirsting, these sorts of elements. So we have some serious ground to cover. Again, we will focus in on Luke. Luke is what I'm preaching through. I have preached through John before, so I focused in on those before. Uh, But we'll, we'll get started since we have a lot of ground to cover. We begin in verses 26 and 27, where the Bible says this. And as they led him, that would be Jesus, away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country... And on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. So our scene is first set as Jesus is led away to be crucified. Matthew 27, 32 and Mark 15, 21 inform us that they took him outside of the city to a place called Golgotha, which means a place of a skull. As they led him along... They took a man, his name is Simon, he was a Cyrenian, likely a Cyrenian Jew. Cyrenia was a city in Libya, it's in Africa, west of Egypt. It's right there on the coast of the Mediterranean. Uh, There were many who would uh, come for the feasts from all over the Roman Empire, and many Jews that had been scattered abroad used the feast as commanded by the law of Moses to come together again. And so Simeon, or excuse me, um, Simon was one of those, uh, likely in Jerusalem for the feast, and they compel him to bear the cross of Jesus. Jesus, uh, he, he bore it after Jesus, meaning Jesus was in front of him, Jesus was led first, and then Simon took up the rear, bearing his cross behind him. Verse 27 tells us of others that were there that day. First, Luke tells us of a great company of people, a mixed multitude of those curious and interested in the proceedings at hand, quite possibly the group that had been crying out, crucify him, crucify him, that the leaders of the the Jews had stirred up on that day to demand Jesus die instead of Barabbas to demand that Barabbas be given the pardon as we talked about last week. Uh, however, there were probably also simply some curious onlookers. It is one of those unique and quite strange things of human nature that capital punishment, public executions have always seemed to draw a pretty interested crowd of curious people. Um, in, in, in our uh, particular age in society, that seems a little bit uh, strange, but it, it is 
throughout history, something that seems to be quite common. So Luke then speaks uh, of a second group of people. He speaks about a great company of people following. And then he also speaks of uh, women, which also bewailed and lamented him. Uh, Now, the company of people would have also consisted of women. Uh, Luke was not attempting to break it up into a company of men and women or to say that women weren't people. And so he had to speak of them separately, except that there was a group of mixed multitude of people. And then there was a separate group of only women. And that's why he makes the distinction, which he does. Now, we know on this day that there was a female group of Jesus's followers who were present. John 19.25 tells us that Jesus, Mary's mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene were all present. We learn of other women that were present there as well. Cleophas is said by tradition and seemingly evidenced in the text to be the same man as Alphaeus, who was the father of James the Less and possibly the father of Simon the Zealot, or Matthew. These are all members of the Twelve Apostles. James the Less is not James the son of Zebedee, although uh, James the son of, uh, of, of Zebedee and, and his brother John the son of Zebedee also had a mother who was at the cross and who would be a part of this as well. Um, all of these relationships get a little bit confusing, because, uh, particularly because there's so many Marys. Uh, everyone was named Mary. You know, you have those years where there's just a name that's really popular, and Miriam was a pretty popular name for a while. Miriam is the Hebrew name that's translated into the Greek Mary. So Miriam was actually their names in the same way that Jesus's Hebrew name was actually Joshua, right? Um, So Miriam would would have been the Hebrew name. Mary would have been the Greek version of it. And there were a lot of Miriams, a lot of Marys at this time in Israel. So, So it gets a little confusing because there were so many of those. That these women described here are those uh, holy women that this group of women bewailing and lamenting Jesus were, or those, that, that, that set of holy women, that set of followers, is not necessarily certain. And I would actually lend myself to the interpretation that this group of women here lamenting him was not the group of his followers, was not the, that group of women. We know that it was not uncommon to have professional mourners to be hired for the, for the events of deaths, right? That there would be a group of professional mourners that would wail and that would mourn and bewail the the dead in any given situation. We saw this earlier uh, in the text uh, with the widow and her son and the mourners that were around his bear, right? And we, we can see it several times throughout the Gospels that there are mourners bewailing the dead. Men and women would be designated for this, for, for this duty because the duty of bewailing the dead was something that was culturally very important to the Jewish people. Among those Jews who were to be executed by Rome, the responsibility of hiring professional mourners would probably be spotty at best. In other words, you have Rome that's taking it upon themselves to execute these people, and these thieves and robbers may not have family willing to hire professional mourners. So it's possible on this day that as a part of the whole execution, Rome subsidized professional mourners to be a part of the process of bewailing them as they go to their death. Uh, for the, the nation to hire 
in these circumstances would not necessarily be unrealistic. You say, well, pastor, why not just assume that it's the women that were following Jesus? Why assume that it is this group, perhaps of professional mourners or this group of women who were not Jesus's followers? Well, the reason why I'm not fully convinced and and you feel free to disagree with me here. But the reason why I'm not fully convinced is because of what we read in verses 28, 29 and 30, which says this. But Jesus turning unto them, that would be these women, said, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? Jesus calls these women the daughters of Jerusalem here. And we'll use the fact that they are women who live in Jerusalem, in the city, as a springboard to offer them a unique warning and a perspective. It is for this reason that I am not fully confident that the group of women is the group that followed him. Now, we know that the mothers of the disciples were women of Galilee. We know that Mary Magdalene was a woman of Galilee because Magdala was on the western coast of the sea of Galilee. While Jesus may have been speaking to these women in a more general sense, considering them daughters of Jerusalem because they were daughters of Israel, because they were uh, Jewish women, it seems more likely that he was speaking of them because of their unique relationship to the city, because they lived in Jerusalem. His message is uh, one that is not familiar to his followers, but which, if these women were not necessarily so, would be startling. We also perhaps don't see the level of compassion as Jesus speaks to them. It's more almost in warning fashion. Weep for yourselves, don't weep for me. Does not necessarily sound like something he would say to his mother and his aunt and to these followers that have been following him for some time. Why should they weep for themselves? They are the redeemed of the Lord. They are in the faith. They are those who are following Christ. They will have a part in his kingdom. Why should they weep for for the end of days? Why should they weep for the time when God will chasten Israel back to himself? They have already come to Christ. They have already been his followers. So it is for these reasons that I feel it's, it's at least probable in my mind that this is not the, the, his group of women followers, but rather most likely a group of professional women bewailers who were hired to mourn for him as he went to his death. He says then, uh, uh, for, he exhorts them not uh, to weep for him on this day, but rather that they would weep for themselves and weep for their children. For what this day represented In a broader context, it would be a day of victory in Christ. But what this day represented in a Jewish context was the final rejection of their Messiah. This day sealed their course in history, which would inevitably lead to the day that Jesus is describing when there will be a tremendous persecution where people will be fleeing for their lives, where people will be crying out for mountains to fall on them, where the judgment of the Lord will be poured down. This day where Jesus goes to the cross demands that day in the future. 
So what Jesus is describing are events that are directly linked to the end times, and in particular, events that may be generally linked to somewhere around the midpoint of the tribulation. The, uh, as we talk through the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ in the morning, uh, this particular very brief passage is going to really help us set perhaps a little bit of the timetable. We know in prophecy that timing does not have to be an exact thing, and Jesus' timing here does not have to mean that the things he's describing are all around the same time. They could be three, four years apart, and Jesus is just saying that these things are going to happen. However, if we see them as somewhat relative, and there's a good reason to believe that, that they are somewhat in this relative timetable, then it does really help us as we seek to understand a bit of when Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is speaking here of events described to the time when Antichrist reveals himself and the initiation of what we call the time of Jacob's trouble. Oftentimes we also call it the Great Tribulation. In regard to these events, we first link to Matthew 24. And I want to give you a fullness of understanding of, of what Jesus is saying here. So we're going to first go to Matthew 24, where we read this in verses 15 through 21. The Bible says, When ye therefore, Jesus speaking, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place... Whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray that your flight be not in winter nor on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time no nor ever shall be. So we see here Jesus link the events of the abomination of desolation which we'll see in a moment is about the midpoint of the tribulation. We see him link that to the, the, the Jews recognizing Antichrist to be a bad man, not a good man, not their Messiah, but the anti-Messiah. And so they begin to flee Jerusalem for their lives. And Jesus links that with this concept of woe unto them that be with child, right? Woe unto them that are nursing, that give suck in those days. So we see this link here between Matthew and Luke, where Luke says that uh, gives this Jesus on that day gives this woe unto these lamenting women, uh, woe unto those that will will um, on that day be great with child or be nursing a child on that day, and we see Jesus in Matthew twenty four link that event with the abomination of desolation. All right, the second thing Jesus warned about in our Luke passage is that around this time, if we take it as these things are happening at the same time, again we don't have to take it that way, but if we do, we. Uh, see this warning or this statement that Jesus prophesies that they would that the world would begin to say to the mountains fall on us and the hills cover us we find this event in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ surrounding the events of the sixth seal so remember there were the seals then the trumpets and then the vials the first six seals the seventh seal is the seven trumpets uh, and then the seventh trumpet is the seven vials. And so this is the sixth seal, the final seal before it gives way to the trumpets. So we read this in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became as black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed 
as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and rich men, and chief captains, and mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains, and said unto the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb." For great is the day of his, uh, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? So at the opening of the sixth seal, there are these events, these signs in the heavens and upon the earth, revealing the impending coming of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> There's a mighty earthquake, not the greatest earthquake. The greatest earthquake would take place in Revelation 16, 18. But a mighty earthquake, so much so that the islands are moved out of their place, mountains are moved out of their place, and the people of the earth, the Bible says, will run into the dens, into the hills of the earth, and they will cry out for the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the face of the Lord and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, to this end, we might comfortably connect the abomination of desolation to the fleeing of the saints in Jerusalem and to the opening of the sixth seal. Now, this is a bit of an assumption, assuming that what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 23 is all happening at the same time, the general time at least, in the 70th week of Daniel. But one way or another, if we make this assumption, we, we see this. So then the final question is, when within the 70th week of Daniel does the abomination of desolation take place? And Daniel 9.27 tells us that explicitly. The Bible says, and he shall confirm, this would be the Antichrist, he shall confirm with many for, uh, the covenant, excuse me, with many for one week. And in the midst, the middle of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of the abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So if you were to do the study, which of course we're doing on Sunday mornings, not this evening, you would find that the he here that confirms the covenant for one, for with many for one week is in fact the prince that shall come, the, that, and, and the one that comes out of the fourth kingdom, the one that we call Antichrist. He will bring about in the midst, in the middle of this final seven years, the abomination of desolation, exalting himself above God and fulfilling the warnings of Jesus Christ. To this end, we believe Jesus is describing here to these lamenting women the beginning of the time of Jacob's trouble, the time where Israel goes through its greatest persecution that it has ever gone through before as God brings Israel to its knees, humbles the nation before him in order that they would recognize him as his son Jesus as Messiah and thus be able to be redeemed. And on this day, the day of Jesus' crucifixion, these words are most significant. For as we've said, it is the very fact that the city has rejected him and sent him to the cross that demands the 70th week of Daniel take place as it will. And this is his message to the women on this day. Don't mourn for me. Mourn for yourselves. Don't mourn for me. Mourn for your children and for your grandchildren. The great message of this day is that things are going to get much worse for the Jewish people before they get better. We continue in our text. Verses 32 through 34. And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary... There they crucified him and the malefactors, one on his right hand and the other on his left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. 
The text goes on to describe the two that were crucified with Jesus on this day, both called malefactors, what we would call criminals or evildoers. They too were led to Calvary. We've already mentioned the word Golgotha this evening in reference to the place where they took these men to die. We now see the word Calvary. Golgotha is the Hebrew word, more specifically the Aramaic word, meaning in the Hebrew a place of a skull. We know this from John 19:17, which tells us, and he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. The Greek word for skull is kranion, from which we get our word cranium, which is our head. So then where does the word Calvary come from? If the Hebrew word is Golgotha and the Greek word is cranium or cranion, where does Calvary come from? Calvary is actually the Latin word for, it's a rendition of the Latin word for skull, Calvarium, which is found in the Latin Vulgate. And throughout the ages of the Roman Catholic dominance over the church, this was the default translation. So the word Calvary became synonymous with Golgotha, with the place of the skull, because that was the word for skull in Latin. And then when the King James translators decided to bring uh, the, the Greek and the Hebrew over into English in their translation, they thought that for the sake of comprehension in their day, the best word to use would be the word Calvary. And so we call the Mount Calvary. We sing of Calvary. And this is where that word comes from. This is the mount upon which Jesus was crucified with one malefactor on his right, with another malefactor on his left. Now upon the cross we see recorded firstly these words. Jesus has spoken off the cross to these women, warning them to, and exhorting them to mourn for themselves. On the cross we see these words firstly. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus spoke this not in relation to the two other criminals, one on his right and one on his left explicitly, who at that moment were not doing much but suffering, but rather for the people that were torturing them, rather for the, those who had condemned their creator to death, those who were destroying the king of life, the God of all flesh. Jesus had spent the night praying in the garden, nevertheless not my will, but thy will be done to his father. At Jesus' arrest, he made it clear that the time of the hour of the power of darkness had come, revealing that the spiritual evil and deception which had overshadowed these events was in full force. He understood full well the nature of the spiritual battle at play, and these men, many of them consenting unto his death, many within that crowd being those that had cried out, crucify him, crucify him, were little more than pawns being directed, manipulated by the spirit of darkness and the satanic forces of that day. To this end, Jesus not only hung upon the cross giving implicit forgiveness to these men himself, but I love this. I love this. Jesus did not just say to these people who had put him on the cross, I forgive you. But what did he say to them? What did he, what, he didn't say anything to them. What did he say? Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, this is a real rarity in Scripture. 
In the Old Testament, we find a record of a man yielding his desire to avenge himself to God. We see David seeking to avenge himself upon Nabal. And his wife Abigail coming out and reminding David that vengeance is the Lord's. And so David saying, that's right, vengeance is the Lord's. And Nabal ends up dying and he says, the Lord has taken his vengeance. We see many times in the Psalms the imprecatory prayers of those who would not take vengeance upon themselves, but would yield vengeance up to the Lord and say, Lord, I forgive them. I am yielding vengeance to you. You deal with them now. We are taught a similar lesson in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, where Paul says, he quotes, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. But what Jesus does here is not just say, I forgive you, but he reaches out with such love and desire for mercy that he not only defers his own vengeance to the Father, but in humility and love, he actually requests of the Father divine mercy. He doesn't say, Father, I've yielded mercy, now smoke them. He says, Father, you forgive them, please. You forgive them too. Uh, he's not praying, vengeance is mine. I will repay thus, saith the Lord. He's praying, Father, I'm asking you to forgive them. And this is a real rarity in scriptures. We see this exemplified in Joseph when his brothers had desired his death and, and uh, he gave them mercy and then he tells them at the end of, uh, after his father had died, am I in the place of God? We see this grace in Jesus as he hangs in on the cross. We see this in Stephen as he's stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. Luke reveals unto us this grace that we might aspire to walk in these footsteps ourselves. While Jesus is calling upon the Father to forgive, those who knew not what they were doing were casting lots to determine who would get to keep Jesus' raiment. The process of casting lots is the same today as we might call flipping a coin uh, or drawing straws or rock, paper, scissors. It was a way of leveling the playing field so that no matter who won, everybody knew that they had a, a, a luck chance. And uh, basically, you were just leaving it to luck. Um, the casting of lots, they often, uh, in, in religious circles, saw a divine intervention there that God was actually bringing about the lot upon the person uh, or upon the answer that he desired. In this case, most likely, as these men blasphemed the God of the universe, they were probably just relying upon luck here to decide who got Jesus' clothes. This happened as was prophesied in Psalm 22, verse 18, a messianic psalm which says this, verse 18, they parted my garments among them and cast lots upon my gesture. You'll find that at the beginning of the psalm, we see that phrase, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We'll, we'll see this psalm come up a couple of times in the crucifixion account. Now the text turns its attention to the crowds as Jesus hung upon the cross Verses 35 through 37. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he be the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. So we see here first the crowd. And the Bible says that the crowd stood 
watching him. Remember this crowd. Last week we talked about this crowd yelling, crucify him, crucify him. What do we see now in this crowd? Whereas last week they were calling for his crucifixion. This week they, uh, 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 last week in our, in our, th- this week as we're, as we're studying, in, in these few hours later, now they are standing there, right? Keep an eye on that because we're going to see this crowd come up one more time. The rulers, however, were deriding him. The crowd, the Bible doesn't say the crowd was deriding him. You might think of it this way, that a couple of hours ago it was crucify him, crucify him. And now they're standing watching this man die. And there's a solemnness that is coming over the crowd. There is a sobriety that's coming over the crowd. But the leaders, they're quite giddy. So they are mocking him and they are scoffing at him. And they're saying, if you're Messiah, save yourself as you saved others. Little regarding that the very reason why he refused to do the thing that they're saying is not because he can't, but because he's bearing the wrath of God for their very sin. The soldiers too mocked him, most likely not in a religious way like the leaders of the Jews, but only as those hardened men to the suffering of those who they regarded as criminals and wholly unworthy of their dignity and respect. This is not necessarily uncommon among soldiers or lawmen that they are able in the face of suffering to mock and to jeer. As a matter of fact, in many ways, it's a defense mechanism for those who see terrible things that they are able to mock and jeer. Uh, In my years that I was in policing, affiliated with policing work, I was not an officer, but in the years that I was closely affiliated with police work, you find that police and soldiers tend to develop a very morbid sense of humor, and these are defense mechanisms against the things that they have to deal with. Uh, Here, we might see it as a defense mechanism. We might simply see it as the idea that here are criminals. These criminals are, are, are not worthy of anything other than scoffing and mocking. And so they mock him, saying, if you're a king, save yourself. Notice the difference. The rulers of the Jews are saying, if you be Messiah, save yourself. And the soldiers are saying, if you're a king, save yourself, right? Um, As the soldiers would not have regarded anything about him being Messiah. Now that our Savior endured this spectacle. Remember what's happening. Don't lose. I don't, I'm, I'm not a person that desires or even appreciates the appeals to emotionalism, but don't, don't lose sight of what's happening here. We're focusing in on Jesus's words, but as Jesus is saying these words, he is agonizing in death. The blood is flowing from the cross. He is shedding his blood for our sins. Don't forget that. Don't forget what's happening here. Don't forget that they are mocking a helpless man who is suffering and who is slowly dying. Not just the soldiers who are hardened and morbid, but these religious leaders who should have known better, even if it was their enemy. Verse 38. And the superscription also was written over him in the letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Above the head of every prisoner, of every, exec- uh, every prisoner who was executed was the charge for, with they, for which they were being executed. The charge that Pilate had chosen for Jesus was simply this. He is the king of the Jews. Now, in the Matthew account, we find that the Jewish leaders did not like this. They went up to Pilate and they appealed and said, your charge says he is the king of the Jews. Rather, right, he says he's the king of the Jews. And whether this be by God's decree or simply by Pilate's own insight, 
having been quite shaken, we know from the text, by his experience with Jesus, he gave what is the only true condemnation of this man. He gave the true reason why he hung on the cross that day, which is this. He is the king of the Jews. That's why he was put on the cross. That's why the Jews cried out, crucify him. That's why the leaders were mocking and jeering him, because their king had come and they didn't want him. Verses 39 through 43. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. So the crowds are watching. The rulers are mocking, saying, If you be the Christ, save yourself. Mocking Christ for his spiritual meekness. The soldiers are mocking him, saying, If you be the king, save yourself. Mocking him for his political meekness. And even one of the malefactors hanging next to Christ felt compelled to join in. If you are the Christ... Save yourself, oh, and save us too, <laughs> right? Save yourself and save us. If you're one of, if, if, if you're so powerful, why aren't you saving us? Why aren't you saving yourself? Joining in with this jeering, scorning Christ for his meekness as all the others. But then the other criminal answers to this man and rebukes him, reminding him that he's in the same judgment, what the scorner was doing here is not uncommon among criminals and perhaps the reason why the other, the other criminal rebukes him in this way. It is not uncommon to have what we might call jailhouse morality. I see it nearly every week as a chaplain in the jail that within the jail setting where the majority of these people, obviously every once in a while there's someone who's falsely accused and whatnot, but where the majority of these people are, are morally bad, destitute, difficult, problematic people, and yet within the jail setting they have their own hierarchy of morality, where at the very bottom of this list the scum of the earth are uh, rapists and child molesters, uh, wife beaters, those sorts. And then from there, the tears go up and they go up and they go up and you have this moral hierarchy. And why, you say, how can there be a moral hierarchy in a place where everyone is there for moral failing? Well, that's the point. A moral code exists for one reason, so that prisoners can feel better about themselves and they can ignore their own moral failings by pointing the finger at those who have deeper moral failings than them, at least perceived so that they can feel moral superiority while they sit in a jail cell for their problems. And this is not uncommon. And this does not just happen in the jail, by the way. This happens everywhere. We are, as a human race, this is pervasive, that we look at others and we make ourselves feel better about the guilt of our own choices or the guilt of our own situation by looking and saying, well, at least I'm not that guy. Or at least I don't do that. Or at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Well, at least my family is not there. Or at least I'm not here. Or at least I don't say those things. Or at least I don't watch those things. And we try to appease our own moral guilt by appealing to somebody else who is more moral guilty as if somehow that makes our moral guilt less guilty. 
so we do this all the time, and most likely that's a little bit of what's happening here, is that the one thief, or the one criminal says, if you are the Christ, save yourself and save us. You see there the fact that he's not exactly excited about acknowledging the fact that he's there for a reason and Jesus isn't. Save yourself. But he's not appealing to Jesus saving himself on the grounds that Jesus is innocent. He's appealing to Jesus saving on himself on the grounds that, that if he's got the power, save yourself. And by the way, bail me out too. He doesn't see the difference. But the other criminal does. He rebukes this malefactor. And he says this. On the contrary, he says, you and I are up here justly. Our condemnation is just. The reward of the foul deeds we have done. But do you not fear God? Do you not see that this is an innocent man? Do you not see that he is up here for nothing that he has done? This man hung up, uh, is hanging on the cross for nothing unlawful, but only for the righteous words and deeds that he has done and that he has said. And in this we find the confession of a man who understood the person and the work of Christ and understood his relationship to it. He understood that he is guilty. He understood that he has no capacity within himself. He understands that Jesus is righteous, that his works have been good and right. And so he turns to Jesus and he makes a simple request. Lord, he says, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. To which Jesus responds, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. We've spoken before of the Bible's insight into the structure of the afterlife. Paradise, as we best understand it, was also called Abraham's bosom, was a waiting place for the righteous dead as they awaited the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us Jesus had to be the first fruits of the resurrection. It won't, we won't go into it again this evening, but the statement uh, does give us possible insight not only into the structure of the spirit realm, but also into where Jesus was for the three days that he was in the grave. But what bubbles up to the surface of this interaction is the same thing which we've seen in the statement of our Lord Jesus Christ already on the cross. Every statement, actually, both to the women and the first statement on the cross. What bubbles up to the surface are certain characteristics of Jesus Christ on the cross. And those characteristics are love, forgiveness, mercy, a submission to the will of the Father. That what Jesus did on the cross was certainly an act of obedience. That's true. But what Jesus did on the cross was significantly more than just an act of obedience. What Jesus is doing as he's hanging upon that cross, suffering and gasping for breath, was an act of love. A true act of love. Manifest in every one of his statements. Manifest in the spirit that he has toward the people around him, toward the circumstance as it stands. He's doing this out of love. The love of Christ for us pours off the pages of the scriptures, even as Christ is suffering. Remember, that is what he's doing. These two men are not sitting around a table having coffee as this is happening. These two men are suffering on the cross on an instrument that is going to take from them their lives. Now we walk away from Luke for a moment. I want to give one more statement that Jesus makes in Matthew. And I want to give it kind of in sequence here to help us remember what's happening on a spiritual plane while Jesus is, is, is seeking forgiveness and is, is, is talking to these people and showing such love and mercy. 
In Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46, we read this. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land into the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If we were to go on in Matthew, we'd find that people thought he was crying out to Eli, to Elias, to Elijah for help, and that he was crying out for Elijah, and they were saying, let's see if Elijah comes to help him. These sorts of things, they were being very superstitious and such, but he was simply crying out to God, Eli, my God, my God. Over the resurrection season that we had about a month ago, we mentioned on a couple of occasions just how significant this moment of time is in human history. Jesus bore much of the wrath of man over the course of these hours that he hung upon the cross. But from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, as there was darkness over the land, that would be from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. Remember, the first hours of the day is six in the morning, and so the sixth hour would be noon. The ninth hour would be three. From, the, from 12 to 3 p.m., from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land, And we'll see in a moment from Luke that the Bible says the darkness was over the whole earth. And at the end of this time, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We quoted already Psalm 22, 18, where the psalmist speaks of the vesture of Messiah being rent. In verse 1 of that same chapter, as I've told you already, we see this phrase, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A messianic psalm to be sure. This is the only prayer of Jesus in the Bible, and I made this significant over the resurrection. This is the only prayer of Jesus in the Bible where Jesus does not uh, um, address, he does not lift up his prayer to my Father, where he does not address God as my Father. In this prayer, and this prayer alone, he addresses God as my God. In this moment, I believe what is being exhibited there why he did not cry out to the Father is because the relationship between Jesus and the Father had changed from the familial relationship of Father and Son to the judicial relationship of God punishing the sin-bearer. And so I would believe that this is the moment where Jesus, and perhaps the the time previous leading up to this moment, the darkness of that time, would be the time where Jesus was bearing the wrath of God for the sin of the world. In this moment, Jesus could not, for the first time in the history of history, relate to the first person of the Trinity as his Father and be related to by the first person of the Trinity as a Son. In this moment, he related to God as Judge. And in this moment, the wrath of God was poured out upon Christ for our sin. We return to Luke for one final saying. Verses 44 and 45. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, this would be at the end of the ninth hour, He said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. We see the same timetable given in Luke. Darkness was over all the earth, Luke says. 
from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, the ninth hour, the deed was done. Jesus had cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The wrath of God had fallen upon Christ for our sins. The Bible says that the veil of the temple was rent in two from top to bottom, which existed due to the holy wrath of God against sin and the incapability of man to enter into the physical presence of God without God immediately judging him as unclean, unworthy, and striking him dead. Only once per year could a man enter into the Holy of Holies, and that was after having gone through all of the physical and ceremonial washings of himself, going through all of the spiritual uh, atonements for himself and for the people, and then he having just in that moment cleansed himself physically, purified himself spiritually, entered into the Holy of Holies to make an atonement once a year for the sin of the people. Other than that, this grand, heavy, thick veil was in the way, barring the way to the Holy of Holies, lest a man enter, and having entered, immediately die. This is the same thing that we see in the presence of God in so many different times. When God's presence was upon the Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, God said, you be sure that you keep the people away from the mountain, because as they come within the perimeter of the mountain, they will be struck dead. These times where the, whole, where the holiness of God is so powerful, is so present, that for a man to enter into the presence of the holy is to die. God had no power over this, except that the whole, His holiness demanded the death of one who would seek to taint it with His sinfulness, just by His presence. And on this moment, that veil was rent from top to bottom, indicating, as Hebrews tells us, that the way into the Holy of, all, uh, of, the Holy of Holies was now made clear through Jesus' perfection. On that day, intercession was once for all purchased for all men. The work was finished. Redemption was complete. Every man could now enter into the holy presence of God, being made holy himself, not by his own merit, not by his works, not by his effort, but through the merit of the name of Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb without blemish and without spot. On the authority of Christ, we can enter into the Holy of Holies, having accepted Christ as our Savior, being covered in the blood, and we are holy in God's presence, not because of us, but because of the one who covers us. Because of the redemption of the only begotten Son of God on our behalf, which was finished, it is finished, he cried, on that day. Having finished the work which the Father had sent him to accomplish, Jesus cries out again, and notice once again he refers to God here, not as my God, but as my Father. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The wrath has been born. The relationship is now restored. And then he gives up the ghost. No man having taken his life from him. Much to the contrary, Jesus choosing to give up his life for others. Jesus now being dead, Luke again turns his attention to those around the cross. I told you to keep an eye on that crowd. Verses 47 through 49. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. Here it is. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. And all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off beholding these things. We see one malefactor who mocked him on that day another malefactor who believed. We see one group of soldiers who mocked him on that day and a centurion who looked at him and said, surely, with a heart of sincerity, 
this must have been a righteous man. We see a crowd who hours before were saying, crucify him, crucify him. Hours later was idly watching as Jesus was suffering and dying and as the leaders were mocking him and scorning him. And now that crowd is beating their breast, a sign of sorrow. As the passion of the night's events gave way to the reality of what had been done there, their unstable hearts, which had been compelled by evil to cry out, crucify him, crucify him, which had recognized as he hung on the cross in their solemnity that there was something amiss here, now beat their breasts in sorrow at what had been done to this righteous man. Interesting to see the wave of emotions that spans this crowd over these hours. Finally, Luke considers those loyal to Jesus, his followers, with particular attention to the women that had followed him from Galilee. They stood afar off, viewing his lifeless body. And the contrasts continue as we continue in our text. Verses 50 through 53. I know I said we're just going through verse 49. I forgot to change it. I, I continued on. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, which never man before was laid. The contrast of the mocking malefactor, the just malefactor, the contrast of the mocking soldiers, the just soldier, the contrast uh, of the violent crowd and his just followers, now the contrast of the evil rulers of that Sanhedrin who had first counseled to have him put to death. Remember what had happened. Jesus was took it to, brought to Annas. Annas said, we go to Caiaphas. Caiaphas was sitting with the Sanhedrin, a council of 70 elders in Israel, and they consented unto his death. But the Bible says there was at least, and we'll find as we continue through the various texts, if you were to study in Acts, that he is not the only one. But there was at least this one man, said to be a counselor, which tells us that he was one of the 70 at the council that day who had said, this man is worthy of death, who did did not agree, he did not consent to the council and the deed of that council. He did not consent. He was not one of the ones that said, yes, I consent to his death. He was a man of Arimathea, which was a city north of Jerusalem, still in Judea. And finally, the Bible tells us that he was a man who waited for the kingdom of God. He knew the shepherd's voice and he knew that Jesus was sent from God. This was a believing man. So he goes to Pilate and he requests the body of Jesus that he might honor the Christ with a proper burial. Joseph wrapped him in linen, laid him in a stone tomb where no man had ever laid. Matthew 27 tells us that this is the tomb where Joseph had intended himself to be laid one day. Matthew 27 also recounts to us in verse 60 that a great stone was rolled over the entrance to the door of the sepulcher after which Joseph went home. We finish our exposition in verses 54 through 56. The Bible tells us this. And that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew on, and the women also, which came with him from Galilee, 
followed after and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandments. So the day was the preparation for the Sabbath. We've mentioned already that that concept of the preparation was the day before the Sabbath. And that is this day, the Bible says. We already spoke of timing and why the church tradition believes what it is about Jesus dying on Friday. Some of the other theories about when he died, where those theories are strong, where they fall short, and uh, where we stand, which at least in my preaching, I've generally stood with the traditional timetable of Jesus dying on Friday and Jesus rising from the dead on Sunday. Now the women who followed him from Galilee watched as Joseph took the body, washed it, wrapped it, and laid it in his tomb. They then left to prepare spices to dress the body, ointments to prepare the body for burial. They could not do it on that day, however. It was too late in the day. It was time for the day to give way to the Sabbath. They needed to observe the Sabbath. They were Jewish women, the law of Moses, the needs of the culture. So they could not immediately go and anoint his body. There was no time for such things. So instead, his followers spend the Sabbath day observing the Sabbath and then at the end of the Sabbath day when it gives way they would get up that next morning and they would anoint his body unto burial and this is where we leave our Lord for this week we leave him dead in tomb and we leave his followers quite sorrowful and very disillusioned but here we do not leave ourselves because there are lessons to be learned let's apply this evening point number one in our application Follow Christ's forgiveness. Would to God you and I could have the kind of heart that in the depths of our deepest hurts could look at those who levied those hurts upon us and wish for them only that they might one day experience the forgiveness of our Lord. Would to God that you in the deepest offenses of those who have harmed you and wronged you and hated you could look at them and well up in your heart with nothing but a, a desire that one day they might experience the blessedness of salvation. Would to God our eyes could be filled with such compassion that we, in the midst of our own suffering, could muster the strength between breaths to tell a man that his faith hath made him whole. Would that our lives were so little more than the channels through whom the Spirit of God flows, that such forgiveness, such mercy, and such compassion would overshadow every interaction, every thought, every action, every word. The world calls this weak. We wouldn't want to be weak. I mean, there's enough weak people around already. There's enough sissy men out there already. There's enough men and women who are driven only by empathy and emotion already. But that isn't what we're talking about here. And I hope you see that. There's a distinct difference between weakness and meekness. There's a distinct difference between rolling over and standing on something greater. Weakness is a lack of strength. Weakness is a, an inability or an unwillingness to do what needs to be done. Meekness is a strength under control. Meekness is the capacity to hold yourself back from something you may want to do or from an expedient end in order to reach a greater end on the other side. Meekness is a strategy, if I can put it that way, a long-term vision of withholding myself from short-term gratifications for the sake of long-term betterment. Meekness is control, strength 
under control. It takes very little strength to allow your emotions to get the better of you and to follow the call of the flesh, to lash out at those who would harm you or your family, to follow the flesh and to withhold forgiveness and live in bitterness or resentment against those who have harmed you, those who have harmed your family, those who have harmed those you love. It takes great strength of character, of faith, to yield those emotions and allow them to roll over into forgiveness, entrusting vengeance to the God who has called us to do so. This is not weakness. This is meekness. This is strength in its purest form. It is harnessing my strength and putting it toward a spiritual endeavor with the expectation of spiritual rewards. It's harnessing my strength into faith rather than harnessing my strength into anger. And on top of that, it's also obedience. For where is the Joseph who would say to his brothers who sought his death, Am I in the place of God? You meant your actions for evil, but God meant it for good. Where is the strength of a Daniel who on the morning after having been tossed into the lion's den looked up at the king and said, O king, live forever? Who has the strength of a Stephen who would look up into the heavens as stones were raining down upon him and cry out to Jesus, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge? And who are we to define greatness in any other way than the way that God defined greatness, than the way that Jesus established greatness on the cross? How are you doing today at forgiveness? How are you doing today at meekness? Men, may I speak to you for a moment? We Christian men often have a problem with this, not because we're Christian, but because we're men. For all that we love Christ and His Word, we don't want to be seen this way. I'm not talking about meeting a bully on his own terms, standing up to him and telling him not to be a bully anymore. Bullies are generally quite cowardly and they back down when they're stood up to. That's a, that's a fine thing. That's a right thing. What I'm talking about is how you feel about that bully that has already done these things to you. What I'm talking about is the capacity to not lash out, lash back, hold resentments, get angry, seek our own vengeance. We don't want to turn the other cheek, men. We don't want to forgive those that are deemed unworthy of our forgiveness. But when we pull back the curtain, the choice is not actually between our masculinity or losing our masculinity. The choice is not between being a tough guy or a pushover. That may be how the world frames the choice. That may be how society frames the choice. That may be how our minds frame the choice. That if I show an, even an ounce, if I give any ground here, then that's just going to be seen as weakness. And it may very well be seen as weakness in the same way that the leaders on this day mocked Christ and said, if you actually have power, come down off the cross. In the same way that the soldiers mocked the king and saying, if you actually have kingly authority, where are your, where, where are your people to get you down off this cross? In the same way that, the, that, that the, the, uh, the malefactor on the cross said, if you actually have power, get yourself and me off of this cross. But the very fact that Jesus was being mocked for his weakness does not mean he was weak, does it? The very fact that Jesus was being mocked and scorned for not taking action does not mean he could not have taken action. It means he had the strength under control enough to put his action where it made the most good. 
to do what was best in the eyes of the one who mattered the most. It doesn't matter what the neighbor kid thinks of you. It doesn't matter what your coworker thinks of you. Oh, he's a pushover. Oh, he won't. Oh, he forgives. Oh, he's merciful. It doesn't matter what society thinks of us. Nearly as much as it matters what God thinks of us. Where does greatness really matter? Does greatness matter in the scale of the history books? If you live long enough in a history book, they're just going to redefine your legacy anyway. I mean, the, you see what's happening to our history books today? <laughs> everyone's, everyone's terrible. They're tearing down statues of John Adams and Jeff, Thomas Jefferson because they were slave owners. So are the history books where our legacy wants to be defined? Is it on the score sheet? Is it in the stat book? Is it on our tombstone? Where does our legacy make the most good? Is it not before the throne of God? Is it not the gold, silver, precious stones in the heavenlies? Are those rewards not truly where our legacy makes a difference? Who are you withholding forgiveness and compassion from today? On what grounds are you withholding it? Have you more cause to hate them than Christ had to hate his executioners? Can you forgive as Christ forgave? If you're a believer, may I just say this, you can. It is within you through the Spirit of God. The question is, then let me ask it this way, will you be obedient Submissive. Do you have enough faith to see the, the end game and forgive as Christ forgave? Pastor, you don't understand what you're asking. You don't understand how hard it will be. You don't understand what's been done to me. You don't understand the evil. Perhaps I do not. And if you need help with any of those things, if you need to talk it out, if you need counseling, come see me. I'd love to help you. Find your way through that. But either way, I can tell you this. God never asks us to go where His grace is not sufficient to provide and where the end is not for our best good. So let's get busy obeying. Let's have the faith. Number two. First, follow Christ's forgiveness. Second, follow Christ's yieldedness. If anything is apparent from the interactions between Christ and the others on this day, Christ saw this day about everyone but himself. That's pretty apparent, isn't it? In compassion, he speaks to the women, the women of Jerusalem for things will get much worse before they'll get better. In compassion, Jesus asks the Father to forgive his executioners. In compassion, Jesus comforts the heart of the malefactor who believed. Jesus endured and looked uh, outward rather than inward because he was yielded to the will of his Father. At this point, it wasn't about him. It was about the will of his Father. Do you live this way? Is each difficult circumstance an affront to your rights? Or is it a chance for you to yield to a, a greater principle? Mom and dad said this to me, and that is against my rights. That is against my will. Or is it an opportunity for you to serve the Lord by honoring and obeying your parents? The government asks this of me. That's against my rights. Where's freedom? Is it even around anymore? Or is it an opportunity for you to glorify the God of heaven by submitting yourself to your higher authorities? Where's your mind? Where's your heart? 
Where's your intent on any given day? Is it all about you? How your parents have hurt you, how your husband has hurt you, how your wife has hurt you, how they did this and, and they weren't thinking of you or they did this in order to hurt you, how the person cut you off, how that, cat, that, that, that clerk at the store was not kind to you, how that, that waitress did not bring uh, 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 drinks fast enough, how, how the, whatever. Is it all about the affronts to you? Is each trial of frustration... I'm doing this now. I'm having to go through that. So-and-so's sick. I just lost that. I didn't have that. Where's God in all of this? Or is it, is, it, is, it, is it a frustration or is it an opportunity to submit? It's not easy right now. But you know what, Lord? Your grace does not lead. Your, your will does not lead where your grace does not keep. It's not easy now, Father, but I, can I trust that if I get through this time, having not once sinned in my heart before you, as with Job, there's a reward on the other side. I can trust it. I believe it by faith, Father. I'm going to submit myself to this circumstance in faith. Do the troubles and the trials and the frustrations of life cause you to turn your eyes inward and, do, and become self-pitying and self-centered and self-focused? Or does it cause you to turn your eyes upward to the will of the Father? Christ's hours on the cross express the epitome of yieldedness to the will of the Father on that day. And let me remind you where that yieldedness was forged. Do you remember? That yieldedness was forged in hours of Jesus on his knees in the garden saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Where does the power come from to submit ourselves in the day of trial, in the day of trouble, in the day of persecution, in the day of frustration, in the day of whatever it might be? Where does it come from? It comes from prayer. Watch and pray. To follow Christ into forgiveness takes yieldedness. To follow Christ into yieldedness comes through watchful prayer. Are you yielded? Or is there something in the way this evening? You're focused on self, the things that have been done to you, the offenses against you. Set yourself apart unto the Lord. Place yourself on the altar. Make God's way your way. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame. Did he like the day? No, but it was for the joy that was set before him. Do you have the faith to see the joy at the end of the trial? To make God's joy your joy, to make God's way your way, to make God's expectation your expectation, all with this assurance that if you do so, you will never regret it. You cannot regret it, for faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Third and finally, follow Christ's followers. In the hour of his death, the malefactor asked Christ to remember him in humility. When surrounding, surrounded by the mocking of his fellow soldiers, the centurion acknowledged that this was a righteous man. Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, in love for the kingdom of God, opposed the counsel and the deeds of the religious leaders and honored the body of the dead. The women who had followed him prepared to anoint his body for the burial, yet still carefully honored his commands, the commands of the law, in order to observe the Sabbath. There are times in our lives where we start to feel alone. 
as if the battles of forgiveness or yieldedness or submission, faithfulness in difficult times, the trials of life, the hatred of this world toward you, the pain and the weariness of obedience, as if no one would understand, as if you're on a little island all your own and it's you and this trial or this, this suffering. But let us recall that from the beginning there has always been a remnant. And we follow in their footsteps. We stand upon the shoulders of the giants who have gone before us. We walk the path that they have forged. We follow them as they follow Christ and they give us hope and remind us that others have been here before. Hope that as they overcame, so too can we. And they remind us as well, and this is also very important in the day of trial, especially for we who are parents. They remind us as well that the next generation of the followers of Christ are sitting in the seats this evening with us. Some yet to grace this earth with their dear little lives. And they will follow in our footsteps. They will walk the path that we are forging for them. On that day, Jesus acknowledged that it was the hour of the power of darkness to have its way. We still fight the power of darkness. We still wrestle against those forces. But we aren't alone, nor do we lack the precedent to know how this battle ends. The battle is the Lord's, and we are assured in Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That means we're freed from fret, from worry, from wonder, and we're freed to simply trust and obey. Is that you this evening? Do you stand on the shoulders of the giants who have gone before? Have you assumed the faith that they have exemplified? They were not superhumans, they were nothing special. But they've become special for we, Christ's church, because we see in them the legacy of faith. Is it found in you? Is it exemplified in you? Is that your legacy today? Are you continuing on the path that they have trod? Will you be a part of leading the next generation of the church into this very faith? There really is no better privilege, no greater cause, and may we all see it that way this evening. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.